Welcome to the Climate Brides podcast, where we try to untie the knots between climate change and child marriage. My name is Ritika Revati Subramanian, and I'm your host. Join me as I speak with survivors, frontline workers, activists, journalists, and researchers in and from South Asia to unpack the everyday lives and resistances of young communities braving some of the biggest challenges of the 21st century. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. The Climate Brides podcast is supported by the University of Cambridge Public Engagement Starter Fund 2021. If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website where we have full transcripts of the episode, a specially curated reading list, climate models and infographics. Until then, follow the Climate Brides page on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to stay tuned and stay updated. A researcher, teacher, trainer and social activist, Nitya Rao is professor of gender and development at the University of East Anglia, UK. Through her pioneering work, Professor Rao has brought deep experience and understanding of farmer livelihoods, gender and climate change for research policy and practice in Asia and Africa. She is a member of the steering group of the high-level panel of experts to the Committee on Global Food Security. and the strategic advisory group to the global challenges research fund of the uk government today professor rao joins us from tamil nadu in india to share her notes from the field on the everyday negotiations and resistances of women and girls confronting the climate crisis at the last mile professor rao thank you very much for joining us today we're really excited now to begin with what are some of the ways in which indigenous communities understand and uh, describe climate change you know what's the vocabulary used on the ground and how has it evolved with time i think climate change is something that is not very easily understood uh, uh within local context mm. but people really look at the effects on their day to day lives so for instance in coastal areas you know in uh, tamil nadu where i have been working frequency of storms following the 2004 tsunami mm. have increased uh, uh and this has made people actually rethink uh, their strategies of how what kind of uh, technology they should use how they should fish where they should fish and so on and so forth okay often in tamil nadu for instance uh, men used to go to some you know other places and stay there to go for fishing like deep sea and so on mm-hmm. and after the tsunami basically their behavioral pattern changed because they said that we want to be close to our families you know families are too precious and anything may happen to us Uh, any time right um in the case of maharashtra in palghar again in the coastal communities people talk not about climate change but about you know decline in fish for instance hmm. or okay. storms or how it has actually affected their everyday lives and livelihoods and i think from a gender lens this is very important hmm. because that's what then uh, kind of affects you know how you behave or how you act and it is not a generic kind of idea of climate change and i feel that this is the disconnect when we're talking about communities and we're talking about academic work right. that you know academic work is talking about uh, temperatures precipitation you know in sort of and while these are very important hmm. but it doesn't if you just say okay temperature is changing or global warming you know people can feel it hmm. but until and unless you translate it into the ways in which it's affecting their lives hmm. so if because of temperature change if, let us say if a pest attack has increased and they've lost their crop or they have to harvest earlier 
you know those are the ways in which people experience it so i would say that everybody is experiencing climate change hmm. but i think we talk about it in very different uh, ways right and uh, you know my next question is globally there is a serious lack of robust scientific data to measure the impacts of climate change on the lives of women and girls now you've spent nearly 30 years on the field and have worked extensively across continents professor rao how do you understand the problem and what questions are you asking so i think for me the starting point uh, probably it's my background working as a you know with organizing women before coming into the academia but for me the starting point has always been the women or the communities right. and building my frameworks uh, upwards rather than starting with a a framework and then building down mm. and i think this actually has a huge advantage because you can see the interlinkages in a woman's life so when you're talking you know there at the same time you can observe you can see that there are the children there there is the kitchen there to manage there are the fields to go the interlinkages between the different kinds of work and the different parts of their lives yeah that basic understanding about the flexibility of work about the multiplicity hmm. of work and about the simultaneity hmm. actually of uh, women's work of managing the child talking to the child of talking to the you know of cooking of uh, you know managing a toddler so doing multiple things hmm. at the same time right. and i think that actually contributed to my understanding that if you are really talking about adaptation the starting points even if you are talking about climate may not only be in production hmm. which is often what the thing is that how do you boost production you know what are the varieties of crops which will be drought prone drought uh, drought resistant or whatever Hmm. but that is important at at its level in terms of intervention but one intervention is not enough i think specifically in the context for me which is very important when doing gender analysis is sort of the divisions of labor right and how you know labor allocations because we know that even in agriculture men and women are involved but the tasks are gender differentiated hmm. because of changing precipitation or changing uh uh weather or whatever it is or temperatures you know how these cropping cycles have shifted in the case of crops or in the case of fisheries uh, you know fish production fish breeding the types of fishes that are available where we are working in palghar actually is famous for bombay duck okay and uh, you know that's their kind of usp and now like bombay duck production has gone down by almost 75% oh. so all the women were involved in bombay duck drying really and that whole village used to have like the whole beach area and the side area lots of land allocated to bombay duck drying mm. and now it's just kind of uh, vacant because and these women don't get employment and then they are having to look for other work like factory work or other kinds of things so i think that that is uh, i think to that extent i think the conversation hasn't moved that if you have to really adapt or enable adaptation to climate change or mitigate the risks right. then you know how do we ensure livelihood security yeah. how do we understand livelihoods as gendered hmm. and then address you know the specific needs of men and women so even though india has you know 30 states but only about four or five states mm-hmm. actually uh, are doing a bit of nuance uh, writing in terms of uh, their plans So I think definitely there is a conversation definitely there is greater awareness right. but I think it still needs a sort of a long way to go to match up the different discourses at the community level and at the policy making right. and academic level right right you know on on that note a large part of your pioneering work on gender and climate change has been based out of the african continent particularly in east africa 
Now, what are some of the ways in which indigenous communities in the continent there have been confronting the climate crisis? In a previous project, I was part of a consortium called ASAR, that's Adaptation at Scale in Semi-Arid Regions. And we were working across Africa, East Africa, West Africa, Southern Africa, as well as in India. And my own work, field work, was in East Africa. Mm -hmm. Kenya and Ethiopia is the area that I know best over the last couple of years. And this was more with pastoral groups, very dry part of the Rift Valley. And uh, a drought has become very, very frequent. So, you know, people were recollecting that, uh, you know, like till 20 years ago, maybe once in 10 years or once in 15 years would be drought now every other year. Hmm. And we saw it ourselves. And this has had uh, some consequences which are similar to South Asia, of course, with drought and lack of water. So, you know, that domestic water collection and also a lot of water-related tasks are done by women. Hmm. And so there was a real crisis in terms of water and having access uh, to water, water collection. In many cases, it was too far because these are very dry areas. You know, and women really didn't have the time to walk long distances. But this then meant uh, buying water. Right. And water was quite expensive, which meant that already with drought, you know, you're losing your cattle. You're not earning much. And uh, then on top of it, you're having to spend money on water. Yeah. So your food consumption, your other needs really get uh, curbed to a large extent. Uh, Very interesting in East Africa. Mm. And uh, probably I I haven't uh, so closely observed it Mm. in India, but I don't know. I mean, in East Africa, what was very interesting as we were researching during the drought, uh, Mm. because the men are the herders, similar to farming or fishing, (laughs) that the men go out, they herd, but the women do uh, sort of all the, you know, the cleaning, the feeding, the uh, with livestock across uh, the board but also very importantly and the income from the milk becomes really part of women's kitty which they can then use for uh, everyday expenses and what happened with drought was that the men were moving very far away because there were no pastures so women didn't have access to this income and they were getting into all sorts of legal to semi-legal activities some were trying to you know just sell petty shops and so on Uh, that was a limited because people cash was in general in low supply they went into this um, intoxicant called Mira, um, which is, uh, you know, so men basically spending whatever money and women were selling this intoxicant. And then also some went into the younger women, also went if they needed more money, if they had more younger children, there was no support from the husband. They went in for casual sex work uh, to earn money because that remains for women one form of work where it pays relatively better than doing, you know, selling some buns or puffs or whatever it is. So, but of course, this then has health risks. So cases of HIV were increasing and so on. The other different thing that I saw in East Africa and possibly because uh, also Kenya, Ethiopia are close to the Somali border. Those areas are also prone to conflict. That uh, these men really out of frustration, whether pushed by politicians or just pushed through ethnic kind of uh, rivalries, you know, trying to steal each other's cattle, trying to somehow make do. I think there's also an issue of masculinities Hmm. and a crisis of masculinities that a lot of them go into, uh, they get guns easily and then they go into this kind of conflict. So even when I was there, actually there were moments when it was pretty risky because there were cases of shooting, there were cases of people, young men dying and so on. So I think that was the other thing that with uh, with lack of proper response 
to climate change like droughts or the way it affects people's lives. I think the responses were, for young men, it was very much about violence and conflict. And for young women, it was very much about somehow, you know, one has to make a living. This could be through transactional sex quite often. It could be through taking on other risky uh, ventures, selling intoxicants, you know, even though in the end it kind of came back to hit them. But uh, so there were uh, a lot of separation, so a lot of divorce because uh, marriages were completely falling apart. Right, right. And you just spoke about marriages and companionship. Now, key focus of the Climate Brides podcast has been on exploring the links between child marriages, forced marriages and the climate crisis in South Asia. So in your experience, Professor Rao, how has marriage featured in conversations on coping or climate adaptation? So um, I think given the centrality of marriage as a social institution, I think invariably uh, this emerges or this comes up uh, in discussions with communities. Okay. I think for parents, uh, a big concern, including for mothers, is uh, that marriage, you know, is also understood. How is it understood? Right. For the poor, I think, uh, you know, material security is as important as emotional satisfaction or emotional happiness. Mm. And a lot of girls are actually socialized or trained by their parents or by their mothers uh, from early period to say that they will get married, mm. but that, you know, marriage is really going to be for them, you know, Maybe love and so on can come later, but marriage should really be about material uh, security. Right. What climate change does or what climate crisis does is really makes your material life much more insecure. Hmm. And I think this is where the link comes, that if your purpose in this life transition is to look for security and what is increasingly happening with life is insecurity, then people go into strategies which... Uh, uh, to try and strategize around how do we move from this very insecure materiality or material life to a much more secure material life. Right. Um, for parents, often there are multiple strategies to do this. Mm-hmm. One very important one is, of course, education. Yeah. So a lot of parents are actually now doing that, that educating their children with the hope that they can move into more sort of formal sector, uh, so-called regular uh, employment, jobs, rather than remain with primary sectors. So one of the big you know, reasons for this whole lack of aspirations of youth in farming and so on is really linked to the fact that the returns are increasingly not necessarily less, but uncertain. Right. So uh, education is one. Education uh, seems to have a reverse effect in terms of marriage, because where parents choose uh, education as a strategy, hmm. including for their daughters, then it really becomes a priority that uh, I educate my, if I'm able to, I educate my daughter and my son so that they can get jobs and they are financially secure. Mm. For those who can't, I think marriage is the other way of looking for security. That, okay, I need to find a good husband uh, for my daughter so that she becomes uh, secure. Hmm. Okay. Um, And are there other factors that are important to families while discussing security and and survival? For instance, how does the practice of polygamy work here? A lot of the women, they really experience this drought in terms of the shifts in in relationships. 
that are taking place. Uh, also, I would like to say that from a gender lens, masculinities is very important and we don't tend to focus on it often. I, in Kenya, felt extremely empathetic or sorry in many ways for young men. Now, older men are much better settled. They have their herds and so on. Normally, in pastoral groups, the younger men first are like apprentices. So they are labor. They take these uh, cattle out to graze and so on. But with and then gradually over a period of time, they build up their own stocks. Okay. They also need a couple of cattle in order to marry because it's a bride price hmm. society where you give a two, couple of heads of cattle to the wife's uh, family. Hmm. And here we find that the men, first of all, they, they because the herds are declining, uh, not that many are getting jobs. They're not able to accumulate uh, herds. They're not able to get married. They're not able to secure other kinds of jobs. In fact, in these pastoral communities, they are polygamous uh, communities. Hmm. And parents then preferred, even for their younger daughters, to actually become a junior wife of a much more older man because in terms of again as I said the purpose of marriage you know people see it also as some kind of a calculation in terms of security mm. you know, okay love is one part of it that you like the other person and you you have a good marital relation but the other side of marriage is actually some kind of security sharing livelihoods and parents calculation is that in this context of repeated droughts the older men who are better settled who have bigger herds Hmm. even if they lose some cattle, will be able to provide their daughters uh, much greater security. Right. And of course, many of these young women were not really happy in terms of their marital relationship because there was no companionship. They were overburdened, but they had young children and somehow they devoted to young children. And they said that, you know, I'm not really pleased with my parents, but I can see that this was their logic. This is very interesting. And, you know, I was also thinking if there were any parallels that you could draw between what you saw back in East Africa and the practices back here in South Asia, you know, can you share a few examples? In India, I think we don't have polygamy to that extent. So then it is uh, basically, uh, you know, anybody who has land rather than a landless uh, labor household might be more secure. Or you have any kind of petty job in a uh, urban area or wherever it is. When I did research in Bangladesh, it was quite interesting that uh, they were really lo started looking for uh, boys for their daughters who were migrating to Gulf countries or overseas. And then uh, instead of dowry, basically what these parents were doing is like arranging for visa, so paying basically the costs of migration for the potential son-in-law. You know, because that comes to also one and a half, two lakhs, three lakhs is needed for doing all the paperwork, getting the job, paying the brokers hmm. and so on. So I think dowry was being given in that uh, way. Uh, you know, there's uh, a, a kind of divide in, in strategies. And, you know, I don't see a very clear third way in which people are talking about security, particularly for girls. It's either through education and employment or it is through marriage. And unfortunately, or somehow, the two seem to be working against each other. But I just wanted to add a point that this is in a regular terms, like now because of the general insecurity, the general climate change, which is upon us. But when there is a disaster, I think then you have much more of uh, early marriages. I think after the 2004 tsunami in Tamil Nadu itself, there were a lot of cases, recorded cases of where Fathers had died, you know, mothers mm. were getting their daughters and also other people had died. So there were bachelors, there were young girls, there mm. were dead fathers. So there was a lot of early marriage uh, going on. With increasing climate uh, 
variability and crisis i think apart from early marriage there is also quite a bit of a uh, very fine line between migration and trafficking of mm. young women so i did a study also on women domestic workers and these are usually young women who you know dropped out of school between the ages of 15 to 18 or 19 and uh, some of them uh, especially in jharkhand which is influenced uh, under the control of the church or mm. areas which, where the church is dominant you know the church has been making sure that uh, they record where these girls are going and in terms of placement and so on but in a lot of the other areas where i worked that it's uh, just brokers mm. and uh, this is of course has been written about also in delhi particularly that a lot of agencies have increased so called domestic worker agencies registered unregistered over the last 20 years mm. these young girls come and when i interviewed some of these actually they have very um, dreadful kind of experiences they may be placed as domestic workers but they are not paid they are ill treated mm. they are subject to violence uh, and uh, you know not fed properly so it's quite even if they are in domestic service and of course the ones who get uh, trafficked we mm. don't know the other interesting uh, thing that is happening also is uh, brides uh, in terms of uh, you know i i don't know whether to use the word trafficked or to use some other word mm. but where actually these girls particularly from bengal and so on and bangladesh they're coming into up uh, haryana and uh, they are getting they are married so actually they do get a status as wives but it's really a transactional thing that in very desperate circumstances the parents receive uh, some money in exchange for the girl hmm. uh, and many of these women actually do they are coming from a different ethnicity a different background a different language group they do eventually settle down and live so i, I probably that's one step better than uh, uh, than uh, than trafficking though they don't really have a choice about this kind of marriage in a strange in a strange place so we've heard also about nepali young women hmm. you know being brought to india particularly up and uh, are married to men there right and uh, over the past few years uh, there's increased coverage and conversation on climate change in the media in the parliament on the streets in classrooms now you know really going back to where we began this podcast what are some of the lessons from the last mile for us to strengthen our own fight for a greener and more secure future so uh, yes uh, definitely i think climate change is accepted as a reality it is much more visible for the public you know in media as you rightly said amongst academic researchers as i said the entry point can be anywhere in my own uh, uh, thinking that you know addressing climate change what i said right in the beginning that if we see that climate change is a given it is something central to all production systems so rather than necessarily looking at climate change in a box we really need to look at what is happening to the everyday lives of women and men these are areas mm. that still in the academia i think we need to uh, yeah. we need to focus and really pull it down uh, from uh, the macro kind of models and issues to much more everyday nuanced multi dimensional uh, issues okay on that note thank you so much professor rao there has been so much to reflect on and uh, think through today thank you once again
The Climate Brides podcast is supported by the University of Cambridge Public Engagement Starter Fund 2021. If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website where we have full transcripts of the episode, a specially curated reading list, climate models and infographics. Until then, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the Climate Brides page on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook to stay tuned and stay updated.